Welcome to Real Talk Arkansas. I'm your host, Cody Ford, Director of Outreach and Statewide Programs for the Arkansas Cinema Society. This past year at Filmland, when we returned indoors, we had just a ton of really great films submitted. But there was one particular name that kept popping up in a lot of these submissions, and that name is Nancy Pop. Nancy is a filmmaker based out of Brooklyn currently, but uh, grew up in Bentonville and has been in New York for about a decade now. And the films that Nancy was involved in, it ranged everything from acting to writing to directing to producing. And you know, all I believe in the end, she had about five films, including a feature in Film One Arkansas, which was a very impressive feat. So when Nancy came down to Filmland, we got to know her a little bit, had a lot of fun just hanging out with her and learning more about her career. So we have decided to invite her on to Real Talk Arkansas because one of those films that we screen is now available for streaming. And she's going to talk about that more here in a minute. But first, let's just get to know Nancy and just find out the secret to being as prolific as she is as a filmmaker. It's a lot of fun. We had a great conversation. So let's welcome Nancy to the show. Nancy, thanks for coming by Real Talk Arkansas today. Thanks for having me. Hello. All right. Well, it's always exciting for us to chat with, you know, filmmakers who were born here in Arkansas and just catch up with what they're doing. And what you're doing is a lot. Like, I'm just always blown away, like, every time I talk uh, with you because there's so much happening. It, with You were here uh, last fall for Filmland. You are part of Filmland Arkansas, and, and you kind of dominated Filmland Arkansas. Like, I think we had, like, six or seven projects that you were somehow involved as a producer, an actor, a writer, director. Uh, so, yeah, that's it, it's very impressive what you're up to. Thank you. Yeah, Filmland was a lot of fun. That was probably one of my coolest festival experiences. You guys had so many awesome speakers and films being showcased, and I just had such a blast. So I'm really grateful to have been a part of it. That's awesome. Well, maybe you'll have something you can send to us for this year as well. Hopefully. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about you're in Brooklyn now, and you've been in New York for quite a long time, but you didn't start there. You started uh, here in Bentonville. Well, not here, in Bentonville. I'm, I'm in Fayetteville recording this. But yeah, you came you, Bentonville all the way to New York, and you've done a lot in like the last decade. So you kind of walk us through how the, this journey began and you know, some of the things you've learned along the way that's helped so much. Totally. I mean, it's um, a very broad time range and lots of experiences and, you know, maturing both personally and professionally to get to where I am right now for me. But I will say I moved to Bentonville when I was 10. Um, I'm originally from Romania. My family and I immigrated to Erie, Pennsylvania when I was four. So we lived in Erie for a few years before moving to Bentonville, of course, for Walmart, for everyone who's curious how that, you know, migration came about. It's all thanks to Walmart. Um, And at first in Bentonville, I remember just, you know, 10 years old, 11 years old. It's a really... um, big time in a preteen's life where you're going through a lot of changes and trying to figure out who you are and who you want to be and 
one thing that I got into within a few years of moving to Northwest Arkansas was theater and performing in plays at my school, joining the forensics team. Um, and I did that all throughout high school. It was probably my favorite part of high school was, you know, going to forensics competitions all across the state, performing in different um different programs in different categories and just having a blast doing that. And I knew I've known pretty much my whole life. I wanted to come to New York. I've always wanted to be an actor. Um, and so when it came time for deciding what to do about college, I wasn't super sure if I wanted to go to college right off the bat. I kind of wanted to take a year off and just move to New York and join an acting, join an acting conservatory and, you know, just try to do it that way at first. But my dad put his foot down and he was like, no, you must go to college. If you don't, we're not going to help you financially moving to New York. And I was like, oh, shit. Okay. So I went to school. Um, I went to a great college called Marymount Manhattan College. And I actually found out about Marymount, I think when I was in like the eighth or ninth grade. So it was a goal of mine for years to go to Marymount and study there. And um when I got there, I very quickly realized that I don't know anything. <laughs> like, I just don't know anything. So I, you know, got as many internships as I could. It didn't matter if it was for theater or film. I was willing to do social media for free for six months for a playwright, which I did. I did video editing. I did internships where there was one time I was working for an experiential theater company. And all I did for days on end was take the subway from the Upper East Side, Harlem, all the way out to Bushwick at seven in the morning. And I'd sit in my boss's living room researching latex gloves in China for seven hours. And, you know, through all these internships and through school and just everything going on the first few years in New York, it was very much just about acclimating to the big city. Um, I've, I've gotten I'd gotten used to moving around from just my experience growing up, but New York City compared to Bentonville, Arkansas is such a culture shock, obviously, that I think the first couple of years for me were really just about that, really like understanding my place in society, understanding um, who I am and what I want and uh, what I need for myself as well. And um, yeah, after after school was done, I, I did feel a little lost, to be honest. I wasn't sure if I wanted to keep acting. I wasn't sure really about anything. And I kind of, as a way out of that uncertainty and as a way to propel myself in some direction rather than, you know, standing still and not doing anything, um, I got into stand-up. I did stand up for about a year. I would host variety shows and comedy shows and like pizza bar basements in Brooklyn, or there was this like dive bar in the Lower East Side. I would do stand up there. And um, from doing stand up and just meeting all the people that are kind of in that little uh, community, I started going to art gallery openings and I started going to, you know, just underground concerts and uh, poetry nights. And I had a friend at the time who was um, an art dealer and she was putting on galleries at this bookstore in Bushwick, which is was near my apartment at the time. So I went to this gallery opening and I fell in love with the bookstore and I would go back for they would host monthly poetry nights. They would host like 
you know, acoustic music nights, whatever. They always had some red wine and it was just very cool people. And I was just kind of like digging the vibe. So I went and um, I introduced myself to the owner of the bookstore, Jonas, Jonas Kyle. And I introduced myself to the guy who was running all the events, JC Hopkins. And um, the bookstore is called Spoonbill Books. They used to have a location far out in uh, Brooklyn in Bushwick. And uh, that location has since closed, but they do have one still in Williamsburg. Anyways, through talking to JC and just connecting with him and uh, uh, with Jonas, you know, they brought me on to help host a, a writing workshop at the bookstore. So we did this writing workshop there for two years. And again, I'm in this place in my life at the time where I just have no idea what I'm doing. And I'm so happy to just have anything to grasp on and to like tether myself to so that I can just start to kind of regain a sense of like purpose and understanding of myself. Um, but I did this writing workshop. I hosted it for almost two years with JC. We workshopped a ton of scripts, plays, short films, feature films, you know, poems, monologues, whatever. Every month we had different writers come in. Um, we the, the writing workshop was called In Cold Read. So everybody was expected to cold read these scripts. And after each reading, you know, we'd have about 10 to 15 minutes of feedback and any constructive criticism or, you know, answering questions of the, from the writer, um, et cetera. And from meeting all these writers and actors and you know sometimes we'd have cinematographers come in we'd have editors come in we'd have uh, audio engineers come in everyone just kind of you know everyone's looking for something to do and if it's free it's even better here in New York so all these people would come in and I met all these great folks and just got to chatting and um, long story short the writing workshop eventually led me to produce and direct my first feature film Sorry, that was so long-winded. <laughs> hey, it, it's it's okay to be long-winded. It's a podcast. So it's, it's been like this is gonna be my 10th year in New York this August. So, you know, you asked a big big question. I had a lot to say. I hope that's okay. Yeah, it's, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> so um yeah, you, you you touched on your feature, and I really want us to dig deep on that here in just a minute. But let's back up just a second, something you told me about called the 1221 film challenge. So you talked about you know this first feature, and I really want to do a deep dive on that here in just a minute. But first, let's back up to one th thing you mentioned there. You talked about doing stand-up comedy for a bit, and I, I know people who do stand-up, and I and just from a viewer uh, and from having talked to them, it seems to be like the most difficult form of performing arts out there. It's not like a band where you can rehearse, you know, and then it's like you go out there, like you have to fail on stage. Like essentially that's your rehearsals in front of people. And it just seems like such a challenging thing. So what did you learn from that time that you feel like has helped you now as a creative? Yeah, that's a really good question. I really enjoyed doing stand-up and I didn't mind when I bombed. Um, I expected to bomb so many times and I had a few really good nights too. You know, I, I did stand-up in New York and in LA, never got to be anything super huge, but I also wasn't trying to do anything super huge. I was just, you know, experimenting and seeing what could happen and what would happen and how it made me feel and if this is something I wanted to do. And one thing I learned is that stand-up comics 
they definitely work a lot harder than we give them credit for because I would completely wing all of my sets. Like I always had topics in mind I wanted to talk about, but I also know that with stand-up and with hosting events or performing in front of people at all, you really are going so much off of your the audience's energy. And so I never wrote anything really. I just had bullet points that I would hit. And some nights it would do really well to completely improvise my whole set. And some nights I, you know, if the energy didn't have, or if the audience didn't have too much energy or, you know, was seemed like a tough crowd, I, it would kind of make my mind go blank. And then I would just like blubber and, you know, blunder off stage and it wasn't a good night. But um, I think that that audience engagement and feeding off the energy of people is something that I really took away from um, doing the stand-up thing for a little bit. And, and you know, how that plays into film is a completely other conversation, but at least for theater and for my acting stuff, which I'm still doing, um, it definitely is something that uh, it, it gave me a little bit of a spark again, which I really needed at the time. Okay, well, let's talk about something you had mentioned earlier, and that is the 1221 Film Challenge. So tell me a little bit about you know, what that is and you know what drove you to do it and, and kind of walk us through that story. Yeah, totally. Um, so COVID started in March 2020. The six months before COVID started, I had been, I was really broke, <laughs> I was living in New York and I was so broke and I had moved out of my ex's apartment and I didn't have enough money yet to move into a new place. So I was crashing out of my art studio in the Bronx, using the gym to shower every day, just kind of, you know, restarting my life a bit. And then COVID happened as I was um, actually to backtrack a little bit. I was restarting my life a bit. And what in that process of, of kind of, turning my life around, I um, was working on a film called Thumbsucker that I was really looking forward to shooting actually in Northwest Arkansas. I had done a whole casting out there um, in Rogers and I had auditions and I brought in producers and um, I had assembled my crew and I had you know executive producers here in New York. I had a production company, all this stuff. I was just kind of very excited to be doing, uh, to be making a film again. And um, especially in this, you know, crazy tumultuous time in my own personal life where I, I just needed something to really focus all of my time and energy on. And so when COVID happened and, you know, production gets shut down, I'm living out of this art studio. It sounds like we're all going to be locked up for three weeks, maybe. I don't really know. Well, my mom started freaking out and she called me and she was like, you need to get your ass back to Bentonville because if you're stuck in that art studio every day, you're going to get hypothermia and die. So <laughs> she got me a ticket back to Bentonville and I barely brought anything with me. All I brought were my hard drives, my laptop and three changes of clothes, including underwear. Thinking I'd be there for a week, two weeks three weeks max. I thought COVID was a hoax up until the end of March. And um, anyways, there's something to be said about being 25, 24. I think I was 24, 24. I was 24 years old, 24 at the time. Uh, there's something to be said about being 24 and somehow being forced to live with your parents again. And um, when I moved back home because of COVID, not thinking I was going to be moving there. 
it was a bit of a mind fuck to be like sleeping in my little sister's room. She had taken over my room. Can't leave the house really. Can't really do anything. So it kind of all of the progress I felt that I had been making sent me back now to this dark place in my head where I was like, well, shit, like what is happening? And we all felt this way. Anyone who says that they didn't have a hard time uh, that first year in one way or another is lying. Everyone had some something going on where we were, you know, we're suddenly void of all human interaction. And for me, you know, my situation was that I'd been gearing up to film this amazing, cool, awesome, short hybrid animation project. And it suddenly wasn't going to happen. And I just thought to myself, well, what am I going to do? Um, and what can I do? And I don't want to keep this momentum from falling flat, you know, both my inner momentum, but also what I'm putting out to the world. Um, so for the first couple of months of COVID, all I did was paint every day. I would find a different film still from a movie that I really liked, and I would spend an hour every day painting it. I'd shoot a time lapse. I'd throw it up on Instagram just to do something, you know, just to keep the algorithm going and also keep my mental algorithm going. And so I had something to do. Um... And I just kind of went a little nuts being back home. And I told my parents, you can't keep me locked up here forever. Like I'm going back to New York. I'm getting the cheapest car I can find. And I'm I'm going back because keep in mind, I'm still paying rent on my art studio. I had also just signed a lease for an apartment in Manhattan. And so I'm paying rent on two places. I don't have a job. I just got laid off and I'm fucking depressed as hell back at my parents' house. I had bleached my eyebrows. I cut all my hair off. Like I was just going nuts, Cody. So what I did was <laughs> I went to probably four different U-Haul centers in throughout Bentonville, Rogers and Springdale. Um, Cause online it said that the U-Haul only costs like a hundred bucks a day. And I thought to myself, well, I can get to New York in two days. So maybe I can, that would only be like 200 bucks. Well, I go to all these U-Hauls and everyone was like, no, it's actually $3,000 and this and that. Like, it's not 200 bucks. That's only if you're staying within the zip code. You can't just like take the U-Haul and drive all the way to New York City. Are you crazy? And so finally, by the fourth U-Haul facility, I was exasperated. And my mom was my mom was going into Karen mode and I could tell that that wasn't really going to help at all. So I was like, mom, just let me do the talking. And I go to this U-Haul facility in Rogers and there was this guy there. I think his name was like Rick or Mark or something with a K at the end. And I was like, listen, here's my situation. And I told him, I was like, I'm from Bentonville, but I live in New York. I have $500 in my bank account. I need to get my ass back to New York in the next two days. Otherwise I'm going to have negative five grand to my name with the rent that I owe all these people. And I need to, I need to go. Can you please help me? I only have 500 bucks. I need to get to New York and I, I can't be on a plane because of COVID. And the guy like thinks for a second and he's like, hmm, you know, I'm going to be your best friend. I'm going to give you a, a truck for 300 bucks and you can have it for five days. You drive it all the way to New York City. I don't care what you do with it. Just get it off my damn property because it's taking up five parking spots in my U-Haul facility. And he shows me the car and it's a 26 foot box truck with a trailer attached to the back of it. <laughs> So this was like a weird moment in Arkansas. You know how, obviously, you know, in Northwest Arkansas, there's uh, the craziest weather will happen. 
It could be the middle of July and suddenly it's hailing and you get a foot of snow. It could be December, Christmas Day, and it's hot as balls, 85 degrees outside. Well, this was a day in June where it was not only hailing, uh, there was snow, it was hailing, and there was a huge uh, rain thunderstorm going on at the same time. And I had to leave that morning with this 26-foot box truck and I had nothing in it. Um, so I set off and I got back to New York within exactly 24 hours. I, I pulled up to my apartment and, um, got back to the city. All this to say back to the film challenge. I had this moment of resilience with myself where I was like, okay, if I can do that, what else can I do? You know what I mean? Um, and I had this moment with myself where, I just asked myself, okay, what is the problem and what are some possible solutions? And for me, the problem was that my momentum had, you know, just gone away and I wasn't creating anything. And I wasn't going to be happy painting every day at my in my parents' backyard, becoming an alcoholic and chain smoking a pack of cigarettes with my mom every day because of COVID. Like that was not going to satisfy me. I needed to make something and I, I really, really wanted to um, get back to my projects. Um, so the year kind of goes on and I started producing some commercial work for people and clients. I started doing COVID compliance on film sets and slowly I was just, you know, meeting people again and working again and it felt good. And as the year was beginning to come to a close, as 2020 was coming to a close, I asked myself, okay, well, now that I've gotten my feet off the ground again, what do I do? Do I want to make uh, another feature? Do I want to make a short? I didn't really want to go back to my other project because I felt I was a little sensitive to the way that things had to stop for a while and I just wasn't ready to get back into it. Um, but then I thought to myself, well, you know, I never went to film school. I didn't really have any idea what I was doing during my last film. It'd be really cool to give myself a challenge to do something where I can build a body of work for myself as an actor. So I have footage from my reel, but also I really enjoy directing and I, I want to explore that more for myself and producing and writing. And why don't I, you know, challenge myself something? So I thought about it and I was like, what if I made one film every month next year? And that's how the 1221 film challenge came to be. It's, it definitely sounds like a huge, huge undertaking and I, I just want to circle back to the, the the thought of you driving across country with like 40 feet of metal that you're guiding with bleached eyebrows. <laughs> uh, it's, I, I mean, if you just threw in like John Candy at some point, you've got a great movie out of this. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, th th that's your next project. It is Woman Gets Back to New York During COVID. You know, you got to write it. Um yeah. So with the 1221 film challenge, you're, you're doing one film a month. Now, what, what's your process like? I mean, do you, I assume, you know, being a writer and a creative, you probably already have a lot of ideas in your head or on paper, but did you start dry at, in January? I mean, was it like, okay, January 1st, I need a new idea. What is it? How am I going to make it happen? Because this is like a huge, huge thing that you did. 
Yeah, that's a good question. And I think I have a good answer. Um, the first week of January, I was like a fish out of water. I just didn't know what to do. I kept trying to write a script and I had posted to Facebook groups, just, you know, letting people know I'm looking to collaborate with someone and make a short that month. I think one of the best ways to go about doing something like this is to just tell everyone that you're doing it and someone will eventually show up and be like, hey, what do you think about this? And then you can take the conversation from there, you know, but that was, there's also a fear behind that, you know, you don't want to announce something to people that you're going to do because what if you fail and then you look like an idiot. Um, so I didn't necessarily, when I was posting to these Facebook groups, I wasn't saying I'm trying to make one film every month this year. I would just say like, I'm looking, you know, I'm a producer. I'm looking for scripts, short film scripts to produce this month. Does anyone have something? And um, those didn't go over very well because on Facebook groups, you know, a lot of people are just going around trying to knock people down and they're just not the best collaborative environments. They're not the worst. It could be worse, but got a lot of, um, misogynism and just, uh, at the time I had blonde hair cause I finally went to the salon after bleaching my brows and I got my hair done. And so anyways, I had blonde hair at the time. And I remember I was getting these Facebook comments from this one particular guy who just really had it out for me. And he was like, you fucking blonde idiot. Like, why don't you try to write your own script? Just show goes to show you don't have any talent, this and that. And I was like, such a weird aggression to be getting from a total stranger on the internet where all I said was that I'm looking for a script, you know, but that's the kind of thing that some women have to deal with. Most women have to deal with a lot of the times. Um, so to get back to your question, um, filmmaking, getting back to your question and tying what I just said into the question, Filmmaking is the most collaborative art form that there possibly could be. You have your visuals, you have your audio, you have music, you have, you know, different lenses, you have creative direction, you have performance involved. Everything that you could possibly do creatively is what would go into making a film, which means you need collaborators. You can't just be making everything all by yourself all the time. And I was very much at a point where I wanted to meet more people. And I think I just, in a way, put that out to the universe. You know, I was talking to so many people online through Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, just DMing. And um, I'm a part of a women's film organization here in New York called the Pano Network, which is formerly New York Women Filmmakers. Um, but the Pano Network, I met so many great people through that, uh, that were willing to collaborate and um, I had also, during COVID, been doing a virtual internship, kind of random. I was doing a virtual internship for this filmmaker who I had admired for many years. Her name is Misha Calvert. And Misha had made several miniseries and short films that I'd, I'd you know, seen from afar. And I had met her through the Pano Network Facebook group maybe like five or six years ago. And so I was helping Misha... Um, as like a development intern, just researching things for her and, you know, reading over her um, scripts and whatnot for her. And 
Um, I put it out to her and the other interns on a Zoom call one day. I just told them what, what, what was happening on that Facebook group. And I was like, yeah, it's crazy. All I'm telling people is that I'm looking for a script to produce. And like, why is are, are all these like hateful men coming at me telling me I'm a, I'm a fucking idiot and that like I'm ugly and all this stuff? Like, I didn't ask for that and I'm not doing anything wrong. And so every, you know, these are all women that were all working together and they're like, oh, been there, done that. Like, that really sucks. I'm so sorry. And Misha chimes in and she was like, you're trying to do a film this month. I'd love to direct something. Why don't we talk? And so we, you know, began our collaborative relationship that way. And we ended up making Yes, Mother and Nubu together because of that conversation and those two films screened at Filmland. Um, but, you know, like I said, it's all about putting your intentions out into the world, um, finding the right energies with people, finding the right people to work with. That's been a big lesson from the film challenge is like, I know what I'm looking for in a collaborator and I know what I need from a collaborator. I've recognized by doing this film challenge, what my strengths are, what my, what my weaknesses are and it's helping me also to continue to clarify my goals as I continue evolving as a creative and as a person. Um, and so every month was different. You know, every month, one month it was, oh, I actually did. I was able to get my idea out of my head and onto a page and write the script and shoot it. Other months it was my friend had a, a short film script and we would go to Philadelphia and film it over the weekend or one month it was actually that I got hired to line produce and act in a film. Um, and so I would do that that month. And, you know, it was different every month. Um, I want to also like clarify that when I say I made one film every month that year, it doesn't necessarily mean that I wrote, shot, directed, edited, produced and starred in each film. It just means that every film I worked on that year, I did something different on it. I either produced it, I directed it, I edited it. I acted in it. It was for me more about gaining the experience and the 360 understanding of filmmaking and performing in film that I was looking to gain and less so bulking up my IMDb with a bunch of random credits on a bunch of random short films. It was really just like, I want to meet people and I want to learn. So let's go. Well, I really did enjoy, um, I think we screened three of yours during uh, the in-person in Filmland, and we had some of the others online, because uh, then it was Buffalo and Wolfie that you starred in. Yes, that was one of my favorites. That was such a fun, fun film to make. I love. I loved working with Rebecca and Derek and uh, Raina and Sean, of course, and all the other crew members that we had, but it was a ton of fun. We filmed that movie in five hours. <laughs> It's it's a great concept, and I can see how y'all are able to pull it off, but it still looks really good, actually. So, um, and with Yes Mother and New Boo, I, I love those. Those were just so weird and quirky and funny. Now, what were what was your role in those? Were you a writer? Because you're in New Boo, right? Oh no, you're in both of those as an actor, right? And then, did you also write them, or is that Misha as well? I co-wrote Yes Mother um, with Selena, and Misha did some rewrites on it. Um, and I EP'd it, meaning, you know, I financed the project and I had the final say on things um, and whatnot. And then with Nubu, <clears throat> uh, Misha wrote that one. I EP'd it and I directed it and I had a small featured role in it. Um, we shot Nubu, I think, in like two days at this amazing mansion art house studio in Greenwich Village here in the city. And um, 
there was a lot to do. So I didn't want to have the pressure on myself of like trying to direct this film and also having like so many lines to memorize. I just wanted like to do something in it, you know, to be on camera for my reel and stuff. But um, yeah. Well, with these, I mean, I guess one follow-up question I would have regarding the 1221, what were some challenges you faced throughout that other than just the intense schedule and internet trolls and all that? Were there any other things that, you know, you really learned that you still take with you to this day during that time? Yeah, definitely. Um, One of the challenges I faced that the first thing that comes to mind is like I was saying earlier, finding the right collaborators. There were definitely a few projects that I was trying to get off the ground and I very quickly learned I wasn't working with the right people. And that can mean a lot of different things. For me, it just means they weren't the right people. Um, But, you know, those kinds of um, uh, failure to launch projects and relationships, they do take up your time. So, you know, learning how to, learning where to put your time and energy as far as projects that you actually want to work on and people you actually want to work with. And um, it's all a learning experience. And that was my goal at the end of it all. So I don't consider these failed projects, quote unquote, I don't consider them failures. I consider them as part of the challenge and part of the learning that I was seeking to gain from doing this. So that was the first challenge. The second challenge... (laughs) obviously would be money because if I'm EPing a lot of my own projects, that means that every film that I'm EPing, I'm putting anywhere from a grand to 10 grand into it. And I live in New York city. Like I live in, you know, if I lived in uh, Bentonville and I had some cash lying around like that, my dollar would go way further, but I live in New York city. I pay New York city rent, honey. Like I, I need to be careful with, I needed to be more careful with, um, how uh how i was spending where i was spending the money on too so i had two solutions for that my first solution was that while i was making all of these films i was producing commercials and from doing that i was making significantly more money than i had made in the past living in new york and i was reinvesting all of my extra income after my living expenses, I was reinvesting every last penny into these films. So I didn't have, you know, a lot of spending money while I was doing this. I was spending all of my money on the films. The other way that I, um, (laughs) the other way, and you know what this is, Cody, the other way that I helped finance a lot of these projects was that I was selling my burps through the internet. And whenever I tell people that everyone's like, what do you mean? (laughs) And what I mean is that I was selling videos of myself burping to strangers on the internet. It's literally exactly what it sounds like I was doing. Um, I had done a YouTube channel uh, during tw- in 2020. My friend Mike and I started this YouTube channel. It was just supposed to be a normal ASMR YouTube channel, nothing so crazy. But somehow it turned into this burp ASMR channel and... It went, you know, mini viral for uh, several months. We were we were just getting like thousands or tens of thousands of views from all corners of the world. People just finding it hilarious, people finding it sexy, and people finding it extremely disturbing. Um, but 
in that visibility, there's also, you know, the potential to economize. And so I started getting emails and DMs from these burp fans being like, how much for a custom video? And I just pulled numbers out of my ass. I didn't know what to charge them. So I was like, $500 for five minutes. You can tell me what you want me to wear. I just won't be naked. And they were like, perfect. Can you wear the gold bodysuit from your yoga burp video and burp for five minutes, only deep belches? I'll send half the money now and the other half once I get the video. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so that's how I financed the post-production was by selling burp videos for 500 bucks for five minutes or, you know, what have you. And um, yeah, had a few internet trolls doing that too, but end of the day, it was worth it because I got a really good colorist. I got a really good sound designer and they don't know that I paid them with this burp money, but it doesn't matter. What's a gal to do? What's a gal to burp? What's, this, I don't know. This There's is something there. <laughs> this is America and you're this living America. the American dream. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I still love that story every time you tell it to me. And I do think you have a better chance of pulling that sort of monetization off than I would or other people I know. Uh, I don't think anybody would see me in a gold jumpsuit just letting surprised. them run. You'd be surprised. With the AI technology we have nowadays, there are people posing in the metaverse as high-class strippers making thousands of dollars every month. And they are just dudes living in their mom's basement in Texas. You'd be surprised what you can do with with a computer <laughs> these days. Well, next you need to mint some of these uh, burp videos as NFTs and then sell those and just keep maximizing it. So I was actually <laughs> I was trying to do that uh, when the NFT craze was going on. I met with a producer um, who was advising me on how to do the NFTs, and we were talking about it and kind of lightly planning it out and. I thought about it some more and I just had a weird feeling about the NFTs. Like I get it, but I also don't get it. But I also, I'm trying to trust my gut as much as possible. And my gut was telling me that something about this, it's not going to be long lasting and who knows what the consequences of it will be. So I just ended up not doing it, but I did think about it and I was planning it. I just okay. Fair enough. Um, yeah, well, I'm I'm very happy you were able to do all of these things through your God-given talents, which which I have witnessed before of Belching. I'm not going to ask you to do it here. You don't give if you're good at it, you don't give it away for free. We That's all true. know that. That's yeah, uh, but um, yeah, it's still a hilarious story. And and you're working on a documentary kind of about that experience along with and how that tied into the 1221 challenge, right? Burps to Broadway. Yes, I um I have been um well, I have been working on a documentary with um a producer here in New York about yeah, this 1221 film challenge, how the burping came into it. Um last year I also launched my production company partially using my burp money, so the documentary really kind of digs more into um how that all actually happened. Like right now I'm really giving you guys the overview, but there's a lot more to be said about these burps. <laughs> now, you mentioned your documentary or your production company, and that is Two Bimbos Productions, right? Yes. So Two Bimbos is uh, it's not film. It's for theater. And I'm, I'm working on a film production company. But for now, I wanted one thing that happened to me after this film challenge. Obviously, I got really burnt out. So. I took a few months to chillax and, you know, 
uh, what's the word? I took a few months to chillax and just look back on the experience, you know, gather all of my thoughts and feelings, have a postmortem for myself of the whole project and kind of move on from it, but also take from it what I needed to take from it. And one thing that I realized once it was all done was that as a filmmaker, I felt really, I felt good. I was happy with the work that I had done. I was happy with the way the films turned out. I was happy with the results of it all, the good, the bad, the ugly. I was just, I was golden, you know, I was good. As an actor, the gratification that you get from working in film at least on this indie level, it'd be different if I had $5 billion and I could churn out a, a feature a month, you know, I would have the money to do that. That'd be different. But as an actor in indie film, it takes a while for these projects to get done and it takes a while for them to come out and for your work to be seen and for people to know what you did. And so for the longest time, it probably just looked like I wasn't doing anything as an actor and people started seeing me solely as a producer and director. And that's cool. There's nothing wrong with that. But for my personal goals, I didn't want just that. I wanted, I wanted, I want to keep acting. I am still acting. And that was what I came to New York 10 years ago to do. I went to college and studied performance. And, you know, my first original love was in theater. So I I thought about the film challenge from an acting perspective. And I was like, okay, cool. But now what? What I really want right now is something that has more immediate gratification for myself and something where I get that feeling that I got from doing stand-up where I'm bouncing off the energy of an audience. I wanted to feel people's presence again. You know, COVID was so weird in that you're around maybe you're like in these little pods with people, like five to 10 people, you know, these film sets that I did with the film challenge, they were small. There was never more than 15 people on a set or 20 people, I think was the max on one of them. Like they were small. So I wanted to, I wanted to be around people. I wanted to act in front of people. I wanted to like let the people know that like, yes, I've made these films, but I have other things to offer and I have other things I want to do. And at the end of the day, this career for me has never been about money. It's it's about storytelling and it's about creating work that will entertain and inform people and you know, have a message to share. And, you know, every project is different. So some some things are comedy, some things are drama, some things are more experimental and weird and black and white or whatever. But I've always approached what I do from a creative standpoint. And so I decided with my friend Lita Lofton to launch Two Bimbos. And uh, what we do at Two Bimbos is we specifically try to not try. We specifically find plays that are for um, Gen Z millennial audiences, plays that, you know, are hopefully by written by women or, or gender expansive artists, plays that um, are easy financially speaking, plays that are not super financially needy to produce that will be enjoyed by people like my younger sister who's turning 18 this year by people like me 27 year old girl living in Brooklyn you know um when it comes to theater there's so much that's like made for theater lovers and for like older people to to 
put it nicely. Like there's so much that's made for those audiences to come and see a work. Like you go and see Hamilton on Broadway and like Hamilton's not a great example because it's kind of a play for everybody or it's a musical for everybody. But just saying you go to see these shows on Broadway, the tickets are over a hundred dollars and they have specific kinds of audiences. You've never like, what is the play on Broadway or the musical on Broadway that's just for young women to go and see and be entertained and learn something that doesn't cost an arm and a leg to go see. So Two Bimbos kind of came out from that idea of how can we make theater affordable for people who don't get it made for them specifically. And so that's what we've been doing. And we've put on two plays so far. We Two plays so far. We've hosted a ton of parties. Um, we even had a flash tattoo artist come to our launch party. And there's probably 20 random people right now running around New York City with bimbo tattoos. And so we've just been having fun. And, and uh, you know, I've been performing in all of these plays, too. So that's great. Lita gets to direct them. We produce them together. And that's what we've been doing. Well, I know I've been on you for a bit about streaming them so the rest of us don't have to fly to new york uh not that i don't love flying to new york it's just you know i, I every time i mean y'all doing a few of these a year now so uh, i do hope at some point in the future though you are able to uh just film them and put them out there so we can watch them back here in arkansas i hope so too we are applying for a lot of grants right now so that we can hopefully make that happen well awesome so let's jump back a little bit because it's old news and new news, kind of. Um, you, a few years ago, I guess it was before the 1221 Challenge, you had made a film called Poets Are the Destroyers, a uh, feature film, and that was your first time directing, I believe you had said. So Poets is now on a streaming platform, and I want to talk about that too, but let's just talk about the story behind Poets Are the Destroyers and how that came about. Yeah, so... Oh, Poets are the Destroyers, my five-year uh, journey. Um, <laughs> as I mentioned before, when I was hosting that writing workshop at Spoonbill, um, we had workshopped feature film scripts. One of the feature films that we had workshopped was what eventually became the script to Poets are the Destroyers, written by J.C. Hopkins, who I would co-host the events with at Spoonbill. And... I'm not, I don't want to speak on JC's behalf. I know that a little bit of that story, the story of poets are the destroyers. It's a bit personal and a, and a lot of it is fictionalized, but I do think that he was inspired by these writing workshops that we had where people would come and read their work and, you know, they would have poetry nights at the bookstore too. And that was its own vibe. And so I think he was really inspired by the creative energy around that bookstore and being able to work, workshop them with me and, you know, a handful, a dozen, two dozen other writers every month um, kind of served as a launching pad to help him finish the whole script. And so um, he approached um, me and uh, Sam Wilson, who DP Poets Are Destroyers and produced it with me. He approached us and was like, hey, I finished, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, I finished the script to Poets and I'd really love to produce it. It's beginning of May right now. I think this was May 2018. He's like, it's the beginning of May. The film is set in the summer. Do you think we could shoot it this summer? I have a few people in mind for casting. I have a few locations we could maybe use. And like, what do you say? 
And at the time, I was really hesitant at first. I was like, I don't know. I don't really know anything about directing for film. I've never directed a film before. I'm 22 years old. Like, I'm just trying to get by. I still don't even know what I'm doing with my life. This was when I was still doing the stand-up shows and the underground, you know, events and things like that. And I just, I saw why he wanted me to direct it. uh, But I also felt very scared to put it bluntly. And as far as what the film is about, Poets Are the Destroyers is a film about a young poet, a woman who um, has a one night stand with another poet that she meets at one of these poetry nights. She finds out a few months later that she's pregnant. And when she confronts the poet about it, Pablo, So the main character is Zuzu and the poet that gets her pregnant is named Pablo. When Zuzu confronts Pablo and tells him that she's pregnant, he is kind of unresponsive and doesn't really say much. So she kind of grapples with, um, you know, what is she going to do? She's broke. She is a struggling poet living in Brooklyn. She's trying to go back to grad school. She doesn't know how she's going to pay for anything, much less pay for what a baby needs to um, not just survive, but to thrive. And in the film, it also briefly mentioned that her, that her own mother passed away the year prior. So she's also dealing with the issue of motherhood and what that means to her and um, how she sees herself as an artist. And so to me, that really resonated with me because even though I uh, hadn't gone through a pregnancy and the uh, very personal choice of whether or not to terminate one, um, I did relate to the struggles that she was seeing within herself of her own self-esteem and her own belief in her artistry and her own just uh, very literal struggles with uh, everything that she was doing, you know, being an artist in New York and not really sure how to get herself off the ground in that way. Cause I was going through that exactly that at the time. And I just told them all, I was like, I don't know, you guys, this seems like a crazy idea. We don't have any money. We don't, like, we don't have a budget. I don't really know what I'm doing. And Sam was really enthusiastic about shooting a feature. JC was really enthusiastic about the project. I felt a little cornered, but I eventually said yes. And uh, we just threw ourselves into it that summer. We filmed, we did principal filming for four months. Um like I said, the film is set in the summertime in New York City, which is a very specific look and vibe. And so I think our last day of filming in 2018 was probably early October. And we had to wait another year for summer to come back around so that we could peel off some additional B-roll shots. Meanwhile, our editor was working on, you know, the first cut and everything and um, all that jazz. But um yeah it took us took us a while to get to where we are but now it's up on reverie tv so you should all check it out (laughs) so i really enjoyed the film and you know it shot really well and i thought there's some good performances from your main actors in it but one of the things that impressed me something you'd mentioned to me earlier before the call is that some of the people are just real people that were at these (laughs) the place that where it shot and people that you just kind of knew and I've done some things in the past where you're trying to tell somebody, hey, go just be yourself. This is you on film. And they become so self-conscious and self-aware that it's very hard to do. Uh, But I thought the people were pretty natural in it. So tell me about some of the ones I believe you mentioned the bookstore owner who is in there or there's some others as well. 
Yeah, there were. And um, just to speak to the effect of working with non-actors, you know, like I said, we didn't have a budget. So it was me and the DP financing this project for four months and paying for whatever we needed to pay for out of pocket, whether that meant food for everybody or camera batteries or renting a lens or whatever it was. And so when you're working with no budget, you can't go to some, you know, Buckwald and be like, I need your top tier level actor for five grand a day. And, you know, you're, you kind of have to work with what you have and who you know. And fortunately from the, all that experience I had been building up that year or two prior to filming Poets, you know, doing the stand up and going to the underground concerts and, and just kind of immersing myself in that like underground indie world here in Brooklyn. I had met so many talented musicians and painters and just people who were doing their thing and not all of them were actors. Um, and I did bring some of those people in to actually shoot the movie with me because Poets are the Destroyers, you can only imagine that the film is comprised of several artists. And both JC and I, and also Sam, we all agreed that we wanted real artists to be featured in the film, even if they weren't necessarily actors. We would figure out a way to work with them um, because it just made the it made the film feel more real to us. And cinematically, we decided to shoot it in a way that felt almost like a documentary feel to it. Um, Sam had uh, reference John Cassavetes is one of the uh, styles that he was trying to go for with the filming where it felt like you were almost there with them and it felt like you were there at the poetry reading or that you were one of the flies on the wall when they were having their party scene moment or, or what you know whatever was going on throughout the film we wanted it to feel like whoever is watching it is one of the artists that's going through the story with them and so as far as working with non-actors goes Jules, who is the bookstore owner in the film, is played by Jonas Kyle. Jonas owns Spoonbill Bookstore, where we filmed the movie. So Jonas very much played a role that, yes, was kind of written for him and uh, written kind of based on who he actually is, obviously with a lot of fictionalized backstory. But um, we did audition real actors to play his role. And in the end, he ended up beating them all out because... That role was written about him and for him, and it took us a little bit of convincing to get him to do it, but he was like, yeah, you know, I'll try it out, why not? And when it got time for, uh, you know, being on set with Jonas, and he would tell me before, you know, filming, like, oh, I'm a little nervous, or I don't know about this Nancy, or because it's too late to find someone else, or, you know, whatever, whatever doubts he was having, I'd be like, Jonas, you're the perfect person to play you, basically. Um, even the poems that Jules reads in the film, they're Jonas's poems, you know, it's nothing that is like so out of Westfield for him that he can't, uh, he doesn't need to like rehearse really, you know, he just needs to know the lines. And then when it comes to actually yelling action, I'll tell him like, hey, just say this line as though you would actually just say it and forget that everyone is here. Just pretend that you're having a conversation with the other actor that you're looking at because that's all that acting is. It's such a cliche thing, but like acting really is reacting. And if you can, if, if you can give somebody who has no acting experience that basic note, you are just having a conversation with who is in front of you based on the circumstances around you. Forget everyone around you, but the person you're talking to on camera nine times out of 10, they will do a pretty decent job at making that A, believable, B, entertaining and interesting to watch, 
And C, they'll probably get less nervous about it as the more they keep shooting it because they're getting positive reinforcement that the scene is going well because they're doing the scene the way it should be done, you know? Um, And then aside from Jonas, we had a few featured musicians. Uh, There's a party scene in the film where my friend Pablo plays, uh, he plays... um, I'm a little musically ignorant right now, but I, I do remember it was a guitar. He plays a guitar, some kind of guitar. And then was we, it a classical guitar, like a flamenco kind of? I think it was. Yeah. I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was. But Pablo, it was just a friend of mine. And he agreed to come and be, you know, be, you know, be a background person in the film. And he brought his guitar and I was like, hey, can you actually like just make up a tune and play it in the scene? Like, you know, it doesn't have to be anything complicated or crazy, just something that you can repeat a bunch of times. Would you be down? And he was like, oh, yeah, let's do it. And then it turns out another friend of mine, Arushi, who was there to also be a background actor, she was like, oh, well, I can sing. And I was like, oh, well, while we're setting up these lights, why don't you guys come up with a little tune and maybe we can feature you guys as musicians in the scene because they're both actually musicians. But I didn't think that you know, they just came to be background actors, but they wanted to do more and they were able to do it. And um, I think they did a really good job. That party scene is for me personally, my favorite moment in the whole film. Um, And part of the reason why I love it so much is that music that we made up on the spot. We There was even a poem that, the poem that starts the party scene Actually, our sound guy, Will, wrote the poem that night because we had cast a real published poet to be in that scene to read her poems. And she got the dates mixed up and she wasn't able to make it anymore. And we didn't know until an hour hour before we were supposed to start filming. So the sound guy, Will, runs into another room, writes this poem really quick, and we have one of the other actresses read it to start off the poetry scene and you know it was another one of those things where it was like we all are artists and we're all trying to make art and so whatever way that you can do that uh is a way to do that and I just I felt so much during the making of it and even now looking back on everything before during and after the making of it I look back on everything and I'm like it just it's just one of those moments where like life imitates art you know the whole film is about these underground artists that's being made by all these underground artists and we're all just getting so creative and being so um uh respectful with each other of like the making of the film itself and it was just a really I think for the actors too it was a very gratifying experience for us all um the way that I directed that film, I I really, I had only the intention of making every character feel like somebody that you might meet right off the street at any given moment walking around New York City. And I think that we, we did that. Yeah, I think you really nailed an aesthetic with it. And it, it's a, a fun film. So if people want to uh, watch it one more time, where can they see it? You can watch Poets Are the Destroyers on Reverie TV. That's R-E-V-R-Y dot TV. And you just go to the search bar and type in Poets Are the Destroyers once you're there. And it's available for free. Exclusively on Reverie TV, I should add. So final question. You, um, I know you've had a lot going on. You've been recalibrating a little bit here lately. But what's next for you? Yeah, um... 
these last few months, I've been asking myself that question too. And I kind of took some time off from all of this to travel and get my health back on track and, um, you know, learn what it means to have a full night full night's sleep once again. Um, and so now that I'm starting to come out of that woodwork, um, I'm looking forward to making more features, hopefully within the next year or two. I'm going to definitely take a more a more uh, strict approach than I did with poets, I think. And I'm, I'm developing a few features right now, projects that I want to write and act in, projects that I want to produce and direct, projects that I want to write and direct. And I'm just letting um, letting my curiosity take the lead again. And um, I've been taking acting classes again here in the city. I just took a monologue class with Brian O'Neill. That was really gratifying. I'm studying with Anthony Abeson right now every week. It's like a, a, a applied scene study class with Stanislavski technique. And I also just started a commercial acting class um, with Barry Shapiro. So... I'm really busy with the classes, but I'm still producing. Um, I'm producing a music video right now, actually. And yeah, like I said, writing the scripts for these features that I want to get off the ground. And next week, I will be launching Bushwick Actors Studio. So I will be offering coaching for auditions and self-taping services and also consultations for actors who are interested in producing their own work. So you can find out more information about that at bushwickactorstudio.com. That's actor, A-C-T-O-R, and then studio, not, not two S's, just one. Um, and that'll be available for people to start signing up sometime within the next few weeks. I want to say March 1st. Okay. You, you kind of already gave us a little bit of a lesson here earlier, you know, so excited to to, to see what, what you can do once you got that studio and really get people uh, you know, doing their thing. So uh, I guess final question, or that was technically the final question. Uh, if people want to follow you or follow two bimbos, how can they do that? Yeah. So I'm on Instagram. My name is Nancy pop. You can find me at Pantsy Nop. Uh two bimbos just type in two T W O underscore bimbos. And we are on Instagram as well. You can also go to two bimbos.com and my own personal website, Nancy M as in Mariana pop.com. Okay. Well, Nancy, thank you for coming by real talk, Arkansas today. It's been great seeing you again and catching up and we're just excited to see what you do next. Thanks. Me too. And I just want to say like everything that's been happening in Northwest Arkansas these last 10 years since I left is so awesome. And I'm so happy to see this like just incredible creative community coming together and all these film projects and, you know, the Filmland Festival, everything with the, the Bentonville Film Festival and Cash Create Hub and all that, all that stuff that's going on, it's just so good. And I'm really just, I'm so happy for everyone there that's uh, getting to be a part of all of that. And um, yeah, it's just been a crazy ride. And thanks for letting me talk about it for a little, little while. <laughs> Absolutely. Come back, bring a project back home and we'll work with all of us here. Yeah, let's do it. And that's a wrap for this episode of Real Talk Arkansas. I'd like to thank our guest, Nancy Pop, for stopping by. We really enjoyed talking to her. And be sure to go check out Poets Are the Destroyers. We will drop the link for streaming in the show notes along with a lot of the other things she mentioned. So it's definitely worth checking out and following her career because it looks like she's going places. So until next time, I'm your host, 
Cody Ford. This has been Real Talk Arkansas. Thanks for listening. Real Talk Arkansas is a production of the Arkansas Cinema Society. Theme music by Amos Cochran. To learn more about ACS, visit us at arkansascinemasociety.org or on Instagram at Arkansas Cinema or Facebook dot com slash Arkansas Cinema Society. And be sure to sign up for our monthly newsletter as well on our website. Thanks for listening.